Amen, Father. We thank you for being here with us. Thank you that you, you dwell in the presence of your people. We don't have to go searching for you. We don't have to do some kind of religious rite, but it is just by faith. And uh, you make us your holy people. It's a remarkable thing. And these times remind us they're strange. They're, they're unexpected. They feel surreal. But uh, they remind us the things that we tend to depend on in life are really transient. And the word of the Lord is what remains forever. Our relationship with you and uh, your people. And thank you uh, in the midst of all the, the feeling vulnerable that, that we can have and the feeling of loss of control. We realize our life is in the best hands it could ever be. And so thank you, you're trustworthy. Thank you that you know what you're doing and you sustain us with your life and your breath. And uh, we just ask for your guidance right now as we consider really practical things, really important things about marriage and singleness that you'd open up our hearts, uh, help me to communicate. And we just ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. I wasn't expecting to see as many people when I turned around as I do right now, so that's a fun surprise. Good morning, uh, Facebook crowd. It is a privilege to speak to everyone again. Uh, Last week, Dan was blazing the trail in 1 Corinthians 6, talking about one of the toughest topics we have to talk about, sexuality, lust, some, some things that can feel really awkward, and he did a great job setting it up today. We're going to go into 1 Corinthians 7 and talk a little bit more about the details of how this works in singleness, in marriage, and, and the kind of hope we can have when things get hard like they often do. And I'm going to try to speak a little less directly on this than Dan because uh, we have more a younger crowd in the audience, although I'm not seeing a lot of kids. But I'm going to try to be a little less direct. I don't think it's going to be confusing. Um, but I'm going to try, to try to be careful. The ironic, the ironic thing I was thinking about, though, is this might be like the one week in our lifetimes where I think most of us would, re- would remember a sermon on Leviticus cleanliness laws more than we'd remember a sermon on sexuality. Like the one, the one time, it's like the golden opportunity for preaching on Leviticus. It feels like it's slipping through, through my hands. But uh, <laughs> this is a really important topic and very practical and, and relevant in a time where we've got more time on hands as single and as married. How do, we, how do we invest in our marriages? How do we walk with God? through this kind of thing. So essentially we're looking at, and Paul's been, uh, Paul's been bringing us to look at how does the freedom from sin in the lordship of Christ, how does that, how does that freedom transform people who are, who are immoral in an immoral culture, one of the most immoral cultures maybe in history in Corinth, not too unlike ours today. How does that transform people so that they can, they can live something distinct and something healthy and good in the midst of it. And we, we have a lot of parallels today with uh, the Corinthian way of thinking. Uh, anything goes mentality they have there isn't quite here yet, but it's definitely, definitely arrived in a lot of ways. And people today, like then, thought that biblical morality sounded kind of crazy. Maybe even old. It came from an Old Testament. And People in Greek society were moving into newer and better. And you might think it still sounds 
a little crazy today. Dan did a great job of speaking to this issue, but it might still be hard to, to soak it all up. And what we just want to offer you is this. Scripture, it charts a path, a real path, through the sexual brokenness that we're seeing all around us. And there's a lot of it. Um, I, I don't know how many stories I've heard in the last five years uh, about college campuses wrestling with this, with this cheap love hookup culture and the damage it's causing in relationships, and especially for women who are getting taken advantage of on campuses. Uh, it's a big concern at colleges. And it's not just a college thing. Things happen at home. You look at the, this world of online pornography. I was just reading up on it a little bit this week. Some years ago, The Economist observed that uh, the use of online porn is 100 times greater uh, today than it was in 2005, and that's just on one website. One website is 100 times more used than the entire internet in 2005. Uh, Barna has done some surveys, and about 70% of men and 35% of women say they use porn daily, weekly, or monthly. Um, in the church, he has a pretty rigorous way of determining, you know, people who really believe in the Bible, what their lifestyle is. It's about 30 and 10%, which is still really high. And it's not just colleges and pornography. Uh, the average number of sexual partners people have in a lifetime has gone up by about three times in the last hundred years. The divorce rate has increased three times over what it was a century ago. The marriage rate's down 30%, and uh, the single parent rate in just the last 60 years has increased by three times as well. Now the United States, we're the, we're the, the number one per capita single parent um, country in the world. And the Me Too movement is revealing that this is rampant, like across every sector of society. There's people in power that are abusing and harassing women, and even sometimes men, and we've got a systemic problem all around us. I mean, these are, these are crazy trends to think about. It's, it's, like an erase, it's like you're having a race downhill. I don't know if you've ever been challenged by one of your kids or, or a kid you know to go run down a big hill and see who can win. You know, I've, I still haven't clued into the fact I'm 43 yet, so I've actually challenged my kids to race downhill before. And as you're going, going down the hill in a 40-year-old, body, you quickly realize this is probably a race you don't want to win. And it's one you might not be able to stop either. And the whole goal for me became just avoiding knee surgery, not beating my kids. Because you build up momentum, you can't, you can't get, get control. It's kind of like freedom to do it. we feel, whatever we want with our bodies. It sounds like a good idea. Kind of like running down a hill, let gravity do the work, just let go but we get out of control so fast and it's hard to rein in that we can't rein in the damage. It happens to everyone around us. It happens to ourselves, And it's because sexuality is way more powerful than we think it is, according to God. And, and our, our flesh, our, our human nature without Christ in it is way more corrupt and our hearts are way more deceitful than we think they are. And we end up in some really, really dark places. And the message last week was only God can save us out of a mess like this. Because in Christ, we become new creations, like we were just talking about in the assurance. Where God dwells, we were bought with a price. Therefore, we can actually glorify God with our bodies. And this week's message is going to build on that, because Paul is about to tell us that 
Romance is actually meant to be practical, not the thing we draw life from, but a practical good thing, and it's strengthened by faithfulness and by endurance. Essentially, he's saying in chapter 7 in this first section, uh, marriage is a practical thing that requires, that requires commitment and it requires faith in the Lord. And in Christ, I hope I see this approach that Paul's showing us is not just practical, but it has the power to reverse the kind of trends we see around us and maybe the kind of trends we see in our own life that, that can feel disturbing to ourselves. So let's take a look at uh, 1 Corinthians 7 in your worship guide. Or in your Bible, we're going to be looking at the first 16 verses. And what Paul has to say. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. There's a, there's a lot packed in these 15 verses here, and uh, we're going to divide this passage into three sections because it seems to naturally uh, fall into three different topics that Paul gets into. We have the first topic in verses 1 to 5, where Paul focuses mostly on the serious commitment of marital intimacy. Uh, the second is in verses 6 to 9, where Paul is getting practical about the value of singleness and the reason to get married. And uh, third is verses 10 to 15 that focus on the enduring confidence in Christ that can get us through very hard situations. So we're going to look at the middle section first, then the first, and then the third. 
And this whole passage is really a response to a question that the the Corinthians have. You can see it in verse 1. He's writing, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So we're, we're jumping in the middle of a conversation and trying to figure out, okay, what's, what's the back and forth that's going on? What's the context? And it seems that uh, Paul's previously encouraged singleness for the Corinthians in light of all the immorality in Corinth. Uh, the city of Corinth actually was, uh, was known in the Roman Empire as, as a mecca of immorality. The, the word Corinthianize was a term for sexual immorality in, uh, in the Roman Empire. That's, that's how bad it was there. And the Corinthians seem to be saying, okay, if immorality is such a big problem, then nobody gets married, right? We just stop getting married. That's, that's what Paul seems to be quoting them saying in verse 1. They, they seem to be thinking, no more marriage from here on out. And it seems like it's playing into this Greek thinking that Dan was talking about, that, uh, that the spiritual is what's really good, the physical is not that good, corrupt, maybe it's even bad. And either we just indulge our physical and we don't care about it, or we deny our physical completely and we just focus completely on the spiritual. And Paul's answer to them is, no, this is not what I'm talking about. He says, he's saying chastity is good if you're not married, but in verse 2, because of temptation, everyone should actually get married and be committed to intimacy with their spouse. This is important. This is good. The reason he gives is in verse 9b, it is better to marry than to burn with passion. He's really focused on the challenge of an immoral culture on believers' lives here. And to me, it sounds like a little bit like learning martial arts. Um, I don't know how many people have gone in for lessons ever, but it's usually not the thought of stretching for, for hours and just doing redundant punching drills that gets people into a martial arts class. I mean, it's usually the thought of, I might be able to do a sweeping roundhouse kick or fight off a gang of teenagers like Mr. Miyagi, right? Like, we don't, we don't really want to be waxing cars like the Karate Kid or learning rules of defense. We want to we wanna do some damage. We want to break some bricks. That's, that's what gets a lot of us motivated about karate, but maybe after the second or third month of taking lessons, we realize, you know, not most, most of us don't have the gift where we're going to be fighting off gangs of teens anytime soon. And that seems to be kind of along the lines of Paul's message here. Singleness is really good but it is not easy. And to arise above the sexual obsession of culture is great. And later on, he's going to talk about how it frees you up to, do, to serve God, to, to connect with him, to help people in ways you can't when you're, when you're married. But in verses 6 to 9, Paul's saying most of us really aren't ready for that right now, at least in Corinth. So get married. And it's not that Paul's down on marriage or that he just sees it as a, as a way to combat lust and some kind of you know, practical, practical solution to that. Um, in Ephesians 5, we read how he celebrates marriage, how he says it's a picture of Christ in the church, and there's something really good that's being presented there. Uh, last chapter, chapter 6, he, he referred to Genesis 2 and oneness and, and some of the, the preciousness of that, how... how, uh, how how, I don't think he mentions this in chapter 6, but Genesis 2 does talk about we're meant to be fruitful, multiply, family life is good, marriage, having kids is good. And commentators debate whether Paul is saying singleness is always better 
or whether, uh, whether it's in this context where there's so much temptation and the church is in distress with division that he's saying you should be single later on in uh, chapter 7. But we do know that Paul is revealing something really important here in this passage that we don't see really a lot of clearly in the Old Testament. He's showing us singleness is really good. And, and having a romantic partner as important as that can seem is not as important as we think it is. And you might, you might think, what, what do you mean? I mean, I, I feel like I need a life partner, a soulmate. How can I be happy if I don't have someone in my life like that? I mean, every, every other radio song is telling me this is what I need. Every movie, there's a major plot line dealing with romance telling me this is, this is where we find meaning in life. But Paul's saying here there are actually more important things than finding romantic love. And I think the book of 1 Corinthians lays, lays some of those out really well for us. In chapter 1, he celebrates being chosen and in relationship with the holy God of the universe. I mean, what is more important than that? Can anything compare to that? Being redeemed through Jesus, the Son of God's death for us, and having the ability to live with him as Lord, actually living in our heart, enthroned somehow in our heart. And in chapter 2, that entitles us to heavenly wisdom and power that can manifest through our lives. And in chapter 12, he'll explain God's people are, are made to be this body that in chapter 6 is his temple, that are meant to love each other in 1 Corinthians 13 with, uh, with a love that is greater than anything else in this world. Not just a love for one person that I just pour into, but a love for a body and a love for his world. And it leads to this kind of life where we build the very kingdom of God, where God is building that through our lives. There is no greater calling even the most amazing romance in marriage does not compare to what God gives us in the gospel. And that seems to be just what Paul's taking as a matter of fact here. Marriage is a practical good thing. It is not what we live for. Romance is not what we live for. And, and if we let this sink in, I think it keeps us from that downhill slide that's going on in our culture, that race downhill because it helps us to, to resist this impulse to idolize romance and marriage and feel like it's, it's the thing that I live for. And when you take that off the pedestal, it, it takes the pressure off your spouse. It takes the pressure off the person you're dating. They don't have to be perfect for you anymore. It even gives them the freedom to have bad days or bad seasons of life. And if we get this sense of, man, I want to build God's kingdom, I want to build it with the person he's given me or with the people he's given me if I'm single, it will give you the ability to support your loved ones or your spouse and endure with them unconditionally through things that test the vows of marriage. It'll give an endurance that lasts. And for anyone who's struggling with same-sex attraction or with relationships of the opposite gender and you feel like, Man, this marriage thing, at least according to the Bible, it might not be for me. I might not be able to and be a Christian. I know it's hard. And you're living in history's, one of history's most romance-obsessed cultures, so it feels like 
Scripture is denying something that we absolutely feel like we need, but it doesn't have to feel like a crushing weight because our identity and purpose is really built in Christ. It is so much bigger. We can find so much more meaning. And according to Jesus, marriage, romance just lasts for this life. The real marriage is the one we have forever with him. And that's, that's what we're building towards. That's what singleness gives you a gift and an opportunity to pursue. And uh, it's because marriage isn't the key to a good life. It's a practical good thing. That's, that's what Paul is telling us here, right in the middle of this section, verses 6 to 9. And for those of us who are married, Paul's, Paul's showing us that this practical good thing in verses five, 1 to 5 is something that still requires commitment, though. It's not something that we say, well, if it's not that important, we can just kind of not think about it and it'll just take care of itself. Paul's making it clear. We don't just live happily ever after we've got to invest. It is a long, long-term project. I'm curious, uh, curious how many of us tend to be thrilled about long-term projects, like the long-term projects at home where you, you got the room down to the studs and you've got the plastic sheeting up in your house. I mean, how many people are like eager to jump into one of those? Like if you had the opportunity this month. <laughs> I'm not. Most of us do that, those things reluctantly. It's hard work. I mean, my, I'm thankful by God's grace we haven't had to do major projects uh, on our house, the biggest thing I've taken on is a tree house in our backyard, which for me was a real gift because it meant the worst thing that could happen was I was going to kill the tree and not destroy part of our house. But even that was a lot of work. I mean, I, I had fun, but it ended up, ended up being something that turned into a three-month project instead of a one-month project. It was about 50 more hours to put in and about twice the cost that I thought I'd have to invest and even just building a tree house more of a tree deck because I wanted to keep it simple um, it was it was a lot of commitment it was a marathon and I think that's what Paul is saying about marriage here you know romance doesn't just happen we've got to work on it verse 3 the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband for the wife does not have authority over her own body the husband does not have authority over his do not deprive one another except by agreement so you can pray but get together so Satan won't tempt you I mean this is this is probably one of the most unromantic ways you can talk about love and marriage right conjugal rights Authority over bodies. This isn't the language you find in a Hallmark card in the Valentine section. This is, this is really, really prosaic. But it's true. Romance isn't is that romantic. It takes commitment. But the result is huge because we develop an intimacy that strengthens our bond as a couple. And it defeats an active plan of Satan to pull us apart. It in that it stops it from happening and uh and we need to be clear just as an aside this passage sometimes people will get worried about it. it it is not condoning pressuring a spouse to be intimate when they don't want to all of the language here is mutual 
Uh, it was actually unheard of in the Roman world to, to say that a wife had authority over her husband's body. This passage was actually lifting a woman's value and respect up in a relationship, not bringing it down. And the rest of Scripture bears this out. I mean, going back to Ephesians 5 again, what is the husband commanded? Saying, love your wife as Christ loves the church, as your own body, care for her. Women, respect your husband. Um, we see the call is to protect. And throughout Scripture, the call is to protect and defend the oppressed and those who are victims of any kind of abuse. It's, this is not a passage that condones any form of pressure on, on women or men in a sexual way. But it bears out that uh, in Scripture, the church is called to love and have a sensitivity that uh, is really inaccessible apart from the gospel. And we're called to defend. We're called to, to invite reporting when abuse is happening. We want to know about it. And uh, we're called to protect the people in the church and plans things in church. So this passage is not condoning anything like that. But it's all about cultivating a growing love and intimacy. And it's, and it's not even about a duty-bound kind of approach towards romance. When we consider the rest of Scripture, that becomes clear. It's about real, deep, affectionate love. And it actually points us back to Genesis 2 in chapter 6 from last week, where, where Paul taught that uh, sexual relationships create a oneness, even if it's just a, a one-time experience with somebody you don't even know, like a prostitute. And that's probably worth talking about more because there is a, there's a uni- unity in marriage where there's two becoming one and Christ is somehow united with us in that. That's really profound. If you just look at it, even from a biological standpoint, there's a lot going on. Um, when, it comes to, when it comes to sexual intimacy, there's no more powerful experience emotionally that two people can have. We know there's large amounts of uh, the neurotransmitter dopamine that gets released in the brain, just like it would in a drug high. There's a tremendous amount of intensity that's felt in pleasure. And there's also large amounts of this bonding hormone called uh, oxytocin, which is the same kind of hormone that, like my daughters experience when they see a cute puppy and they want to hold it. It it bonds. It makes you you want to connect with something. These two things and other things that are going on, they, they create this powerful bond in romance and sexuality. And those are just the biological things we know about. And we know nothing about what is happening at the soul level. We can't measure that. But God tells us there is a oneness that is happening across the board. It's a powerful and it's a beautiful thing. In marriage, it unites two people together for life. But... If it's, if it's taken outside of the bounds, like Solomon warns in Proverbs 6, it's like taking fire, which is a good thing, outside of the fire pit and trying to carry it in your hands. It is destructive. It is not going to be good for you. Whether you take it online with a video, or just in your mind, or with just casual flirting, or, or if you use it to, to sell M&Ms on TV, it, it does something. It creates this tearing away from this powerful, intimate relationship we're meant to have with one person, and it starts to recklessly apply it to others. And it rewires our thinking in our hearts so that this insecure kind of lust starts to drive us in relationships more and more instead of an unconditional love from God. 
It's a powerful thing, but it can also be powerfully damaging, like fire in your chest. And Paul is telling us as couples, we need to prioritize not just maintaining that marital bond, but growing it, growing that kind of bond together. I mean, practically, this means independence on Christ, depending on him to help you invest to help you to treasure what's good in your spouse instead of that tendency just to take them for granted and forget about what's good, but to treasure it, to be gracious about their sin when we encounter that and to have hope that God can change them and it's worth persevering through some hard stuff. It's about communicating well. It's about putting their good above yours, you know, doing little things every day, not just when you were dating, but every day in marriage to try to show that you care, that you love them, to build the marriage up, and then communicating well by honestly talking about what gets in the way of intimacy in your life. You know, what kind of barriers are there in your relationship? What, what, makes, uh, what makes sexual intimacy hard? It is good to talk about that. It's good to get help. It's good to listen to each other. That's life-giving. I mean, empathizing in conflict first. I'm talking about this with people all the time, just holding on, sharing our side, no matter how good it feels to us, and, and really listening and showing our, our husband or wife that we understand what they're saying, or her boyfriend or girlfriend, and slowly walking through things instead of rushing to argue for our side. Dealing with the plank in our eye first. And it's also finding couples and friends around us who can be mentors to our marriage to help us get stronger and just can be an encouragement to us. These are the, these are the things that we need. These are the investments that, uh, that really make a marriage grow. I've, it's, it's fun when you see a couple that you're, you're working with or counseling go from a point where they couldn't be in the same room together to actually be able to talk about something that would have killed their relationship three months ago. Like, that's what God does when we walk with him, when we take these kinds of steps, when we're intentional about investing in our marriages, that's what the gospel does. There is real hope. And that's what verses 1 to 5 is talking about, a faithfulness in cultivating romantic love, a love that remembers in verses 6 to 9 that marriage is a practical good thing, but it is not what we live for. There's, there's much more in Christ. We can take the pressure off of it. And, uh, and this leads us up to this, la- this third section and this last point that Paul makes in verses 10 to 16. We can have confidence. Like, it's, it's easy to get sidetracked in uh, the, these seven verses about you know, what is Paul saying about divorce, what's he saying about separation, when can we do it, when can't we do it, but... But really, if you look at the flow, the the thrust of this discussion is not divorce and separation in verses 10 and 12. It's it's all about why can we have the confidence to stick with it when things get really hard, when divorce and separation seem like the only way to go. This might seem like a strange connection, but it does make me think about my first and second grade football team because... um, I had a friend I was on the team with. We're, it was called Mighty Mites Football, and, and we, we had no reason to be confident in our abilities. We were the skinniest guys on the team. We're first graders, and the second graders felt like they're a head taller and a lot faster. We weren't that athletic, but we weren't scared. 
every game we looked forward to, and we were some of the most confident people on the football field. Now, how do you get to that level? Are you either, you're either delusional or you got something really good going on in your team, right? And somehow they'd messed up the draft, and we had the three most athletic second graders on our team. And so we knew all we had to do was just get in front of somebody and get in the way. And these three guys were probably going to dominate every game. And that was the best, best year of football I'd ever had. We won every game. I felt like I was a wonderful worker. I grabbed some flags. You know, it, I felt like I was contributing to it when these three guys were just running away with the season. And we never lost. In a way, I think Paul is saying the same thing about marriage here. You can be married and feel incredibly weak and like you're the weakest person out there, even to an entrenched unbeliever, which is what this passage seems to be getting at in verse 16, someone who's probably spiritually blind, opposed to the things of God, where it's bad enough that a believer is thinking about maybe divorce is the best way to go here. It can be that bad, and all you need to do is show up. Just need to show up no matter how weak you feel. Why is that? Because in verse 14, Paul's explaining, for the unbelieving husband is actually made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Your children would be unclean, but as it is, uh, as it is, they are holy. Paul is saying that God is so present in your life. If you're in Christ, if you believe the gospel, if you're walking with him, your spouse and your children are automatically made holy. That means to be set apart. It's not speaking of salvation, but this special relationship with him where the family is set apart. No matter how hard it can get, he is going to win. Now, it doesn't mean they're necessarily going to get saved, but he's going to bring good out of every situation. And maybe, maybe in verse 16, they could even end up surprising everyone, end up being saved through you. You just need to show up and be faithful and just get in the way of Satan's schemes. You know, it's the, it's the same principle we see in God's covenant with Abraham. Abraham wasn't this superhero, but it was through Abraham's faith that everyone in his household was blessed, even the servants who had no idea what was going on. They were, they were brought into this covenant community. They even received the sign of the covenant circumcision, the sign that they were set apart, and God was blessing this household. And this passage isn't saying, well, go do missionary dating so you can bring people under the, under the banner of, of, uh, of the covenant or marry unbelievers so God can save them. I mean, later in this chapter, Paul is going to say that we should marry in the Lord. That's, that's really a consistent message in Scripture. Um, it's also not saying you should never divorce. In verse 15, it's, it's clear if an unbelieving spouse leaves and there's no chance of reconciliation. You're not bound. Literally, the, the, the Greek word there is not enslaved. There's, there's a freedom to remarry. There's an excellent position paper that the PCA has on divorce and remarriage. It take a whole sermon to unpack all the passages in the scripture, how they come together. But I'd commend you to read that. Talk to a leader. They can email it over. But, but, but the main message in these last seven verses is not about sorting all of that out. It is just believing that God can work in marriage situations when we feel like we want to give up and we feel like divorce and separation are the only way to go. 
I mean, Paul is almost matter-of-factly assuming that God can reconcile in verse 10. And if you look further out in Scripture, there's all these means God gives. There's the work of the Holy Spirit in, in an unbeliever's life or in your spouse's life. There's, there's the work of the church to reveal Christ, to support you when you're struggling, to give accountability when people need to be challenged, uh, to give perspective, to pray, to have a disciplined process that helps us to sort through these things, make progress, and hold people accountable and shepherd people. The key thing is to remember we, we just need to show up with faith. We don't have to fix all the problems that we run into in our marriage, even if it's just small problems and we're not the big ones that Paul's getting into here. We can just trust it to God and he will act. Cry out to him. Let him lead you to peace and comfort. He will do that. And he will give you his patience for your spouse. And, and I want to tell you, if we, if we have this presence that's not anxious about the problems in our marriage, and we're confident, and we have God's peace, and we have his patience with our spouse, that is, that is something that will melt the heart of even, even the spouse that's in the hardest, hardest hearted of relationships with someone. And it will give, it will open their heart up to you in most cases and give you a chance to even speak into their life where you felt like nothing was registering before. The message message here is we can overcome huge challenges in marriage. Paul is saying to the Corinthians and us, we can resist the tide that's out there, the tide of cheap relationships, this tide of immorality, this tide of deep insecurity if you don't have the perfect soulmate. We can resist in a, a massively immoral culture in this downhill slide because we've been given the righteousness of Christ. We have a new life that is under his lordship and his power. And it can enable us to thrive as singles and as marrieds with purpose and with strength that the world doesn't have. We can get romance. We can cultivate it in our, in our relationships where we we can go deeper and deeper and not get stuck. And God can lead us through any challenge that we face. We just need to show up, trust him. Let's pray.